Epilogue of Garibaldi and the Making of Italy by George Macaulay Trevelyan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Epilogue. I have now told the story of Garibaldi for the two years, 1849 and 1860, that give him his title to enduring fame. It is not my intention to carry any further the chronicle of his life, partly because the documents which alone could unfold the inner history of the affairs of Astramonti and Mentana are not available, still more because Garibaldi's actions after 1860 are no longer the hinge on which the fortunes of Italy revolve, but are merely important episodes in the movement to liberate Venice and Rome, which was brought to fruition by very different forces. But I feel the need to add here a few pages of summary, unnecessary to the student, but perhaps useful to the reader unfamiliar with the bare outlines of Garibaldi's subsequent career. In 1861, the spell of Italy's amazing good fortune was broken by the irreparable calamity of the death of Cavour. If he had died two years before, it is not improbable that Italy might still at this day be divided and enslaved. If he had lived ten years longer, the young country would have escaped many falls in learning to walk. Cavour was succeeded by smaller men, who made it their custom to court popularity, one day by flattering Garibaldi's designs on Rome, and on the next to arrest his movement in panic, when faced at close quarters by the inevitable collision with the Pope's protector, Napoleon III. In 1862, with a body of volunteers hastily got together in Sicily, he crossed the Straits of Messina, and began his march for Rome but on the plateaus of Aspromonte he was stopped by Victor Manuel's troops, who opened fire at sight. Obedient to his cardinal principle that civil war between patriots must not take place, he walked up and down in front of his men, forbidding them to return the fire, and while doing so was wounded in the foot by an Italian bullet. He was carried down, a prisoner, and in great pain, from the mountain where two years before he had triumphed over the Bourbon armies. He had not fully recovered from the wound of Aspromonte when, in 1864, he paid his famous visit to England. Never has any foreigner, hardly ever any native hero, been received as Garibaldi was received by our fathers. The quiet square in front of Stafford House, near St. James Palace, is one of the rare places in modern London which is still a haunt of ancient peace, and few of those who hurry across it on their daily avocations would guess what scenes it witnessed when Garibaldi was lodged there. When the Duke of Sutherland's four-horse carriage, containing the son of the skipper of Nice in his red shirt and grey blanket, struggled in the course of six hours through five miles of London streets, Amid half a million of our people, who had turned out to greet him, the wild procession made its way at length into this little square, startling its royal and ducal sanctities with democratic clangor. Then, amid a noise of shouting like the noise of the sea in storm, Garibaldi stepped out of the carriage, as calm as in the day of battle, into a circle of fair ladies and great statesmen on the steps of Stafford House while the duke's carriage in which he had come literally fell to pieces in the stable strained to breaking point by the weight of thousands of strong arms that had snatched at and clung to its sides as it passed through a london gone mad with joy 
after the long interval following the chartist collapse the tide of british democracy was just beginning to stir again with that peaceful but irresistible groundswell that resulted three years later after the quietest of great crisis in the enfranchisement of the working men the successful emancipation of italy and the visit of garibaldi had their part in stimulating this movement in england to the common people it was an unexampled privilege to carry one of themselves in triumph through london streets as if he had been wellington or caesar but he won no less the hearts of the english upper classes at the same time heartily antagonistic to continental clericalism and despotism the duchess of sutherland drove him into schoolyard at eton followed by boys and masters shouting after him as if he had just won them the match against harrow while he was staying under mr seeley's roof in the isle of wight he went to visit his brother poet always an enthusiast for italian freedom they smoked and repeated italian poetry to each other with great fervor what a noble human being wrote tennyson when he had parted from his guest i expected to see a hero and i was not disappointed one cannot exactly say of him what chaucer says of the ideal knight as meek he was of port as is a maid he is more majestic than meek and his manners have a certain divine simplicity in them such as i have never witnessed in a native of these islands among men at least and they are gentler than those of most young maidens whom i know in the worldly matters tennyson noted that he had the divine stupidity of a hero during the same month he saw much of mr gladstone his precursor as he called him in the liberation of naples mr gladstone though pained by his attenuated belief thus spoke of his visit in after years we who then saw garibaldi for the first time can many of us never forget the marvellous effect produced on our minds by the simple nobility of his demeanour by his manners and his acts besides his splendid integrity and his wide and universal sympathies besides that seductive simplicity of manner which never departed from him and that inborn and native grace which seemed to attend all his actions i would almost select from every other quality this which was in apparent contrast but real harmony in garibaldi the union of the most profound and tender humanity with his fiery valour in eighteen sixty six the quarrel between the two german powers enabled italy to acquire her present northeastern frontier without that barter of her independence to france which lord john russell had always feared would be the price of venice while the prussians defeated the main austrian army in the plains of bohemia their italian allies unsuccessfully attacked the venetian quadrilateral the regular army under la marma and della rocca was repulsed by the austrians at custoza owing to bad generalship which failed to bring the great mass of troops into action the naval disaster at lisa under persano was much worse the only glimmer of partial success shown on the arms of garibaldi and his volunteers in the trentini alps though garibaldi scored no remarkable victories such as he had won over the austrians in his alpine campaign of eighteen fifty nine his vigor was not what it had once been the regular army was preparing to renew the attack on venetia when the war came suddenly to an end the complete prussian victory at koniggratz had led to the surrender by austria of her venetian territory all italy was now free 
except Rome and the small province in which it stood. In the autumn of 1867, Garibaldi, now turned 60, headed another rush on Rome, with an ill-selected mob of followers, very different from the thousand youthful veterans who had been so carefully picked out to follow him to Sicily seven years before. At Mentana, the intervention of the French troops on behalf of the populists turned the day against the Garibaldini, part of whom stood their ground and were moved down by the chase pots, while part ran, as Garibaldi said, like cowardly rabbits. Hedged by French bayonets, Rome remained to the priests for three years more. Aspromonte and Mentana had at least kept the country's passion fixed steadily on Rome, and prevented the government from acquiescing in a state of things that appeared only too likely to become permanent, though it could never have given peace. But the end came at last. The result of the first battles of the Franco-Prussian War caused the withdrawal of the French garrison from Rome, and on September 20, 1870, less than three weeks after Sedan, Victor Emmanuel's Bersaglieri entered by the breach near the Port Pia. Garibaldi himself was kept away from the scene till all was over, but his old friends Bixio and Cosenz took part, as royal generals, in the final operations against Rome. Bixio made a feint against the Porta San Pancrazio, which he had once helped to defend for the Roman Republic, while Cosenz led the storming party up the beach on the other side of the city. So fell the temporal power, which Manzini and Garibaldi had defied on the Janiculum twenty-one years before. Italy had her capital, and the Risorgimento epoch came to an end. Two years later Mancini died. In the winter of 1870, after the withdrawal of the French from Rome, the disposition of Napoleon III, and the proclamation of the Republic in Paris, Garibaldi's sympathies went round to the side of France, whom he regarded in the later stages of the struggle as a free country once more, despoiled and oppressed by a power representing the military and despotic principles of Eastern Europe. The old man summoned his followers and went off to defend the French Republic against the Prussians. But his military genius and energy had now departed from him. What his French allies complained of in Garibaldi was not his rashness, but his immobility, not the defects of his qualities, but the atrophy of his powers. Students of war who, knowing the Garibaldi of 1860, deduced therefrom the Garibaldi of 1870, or those who reverse the process to his disadvantage, are equally wrong, and their error is not one of degree, but of kind. The difference was not merely the difference between the Prussian soldiers and the Neapolitans, whom he had defeated in 1860. For in the days of his vigor, in 1859, he had defeated 6,000 of the best Austrian troops with half that number of volunteers. The fact was that Garibaldi had grown old, in all but his will to succor the oppressed. After his return from France, he lived on another dozen years to the age of 75. He was nearly always on Caprera, but occasionally he visited the mainland and Rome. It is entirely to the credit of his countrymen that they continued to regard him as a demigod, when his star had paled for the rest of Europe, and when it was only too apparent that this demigod was no more exempt than Tithonus from the ravages of age, and from other weaknesses of mortal men. The end came in his White House at Caprera on a June evening in 1882. 
the old sailor farmer and fighter was propped up on the pillows to watch for the last time the sunlight gliding the waves and the granite rocks while his life was slowly ebbing out two little birds whom he had taught not to fear him fluttered in from the moor and sat chirping on the window-sill the attendants were about to drive them away lest they should disturb him when that voice was heard once more by men bidding them let the little birds come in and always feed them after he was gone and having given these orders he went upon his last expedition this year nineteen eleven italy has been celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of her birth which she dates from the official proclamation of the italian kingdom in eighteen sixty one the immediate outcome of the events narrated in this volume after the lapse of a half a century it is possible to see whether the men of the risorgimento were building on the sand or on the rock nothing is more remarkable though to believers in nationality and ordered liberty nothing is more natural than the stability of the italian kingdom the oscillations of the structure that cavour reared in the earthquake of eighteen sixty went on for some forty years but the vibration has now ceased and the building is as safe as any in europe to-day politics in italy could be more easily criticized for their stagnation than for any dangerous tendency towards either revolution or reaction the foundations of human liberty and the foundations of social order exist there on a firm basis the growing difficulties of the social problem common to all europe find at least mitigation in the free political institutions of a nation so recently created by the common efforts of all classes in some european countries freedom and order have not yet been secured and until our fathers times there was no reason to suppose that these benefits would accrue to italy for many generations to come the power of this great national movement has fortunately been directed only to the securing of italian liberty and not to the oppression of others no doubt the reason of this is the fortunate fact that no alien race dwells beside the italian within the boundaries of the peninsula there is no one for the italian to oppress but the result has been the unstained purity and idealism of patriotic emotion there from the time of mancini's young italy to our own while english french german and magyar freedom were all vindicated more or less at the expense of some other race or races there is no one who can complain that he was enslaved in order that italy might be free no other power certainly not austria or the pope is the worse off for having been forced to yield the italian soil to the italian state all diplomats now recognize what our british statesmen foresaw how great is europe's gain in peace and security by the success of the regimiento in its own day the bugbear of diplomats in this way the italian question for nearly four centuries the most frequent cause of international disturbance and war has been laid to rest once for all italy which has ever since the wars of francis i and charles v had been the arena wherein french and german ambition wrestled for supremacy with england ever hoovering an uneasy spectator on the skirts of a conflict so dangerous to the balance of power italy has now been neutralized as securely as switzerland to the immense benefit of the cause of peace and goodwill among men in italy herself it is the traditions of the risorgimento that unite and elevate her children 
all classes from king to workman all provinces from piedmont to sicily are bound together by these memories of a history so recent yet so poetical and so profound nor has any material progress been wanting especially of late years in the north in the south and in sicily brigandage has been stamped out justice and order are far better in italy than they ever have been except under the roman empire and then there was no liberty in the middle ages the italians could paint and build and trade and write but they murdered and tortured and slaughtered each other like fiends the change towards humanity and freedom has been immense the evils of modern italy are the result of two thousand years misgovernment and three hundred years of foreign domination and national death the good is the revolt of the modern italian against this ancient heritage of evil and the risorgimento the resurrection as it is well called was the symbol of that revolt the comparison by which modern italy fails is the comparison of her achievement with the ideals and the character of the men of her own risorgimento but if the comparison be made materially morally or intellectually with the italy of the eighteenth century or of the restoration after waterloo the balance is so immensely on the side of modern italy that we feel that the men of the risorgimento are justified and have essentially succeeded in their aim their sufferings and their deeds are recorded not only as a high example and inspiration such as history too seldom affords but because they have had practical consequences of great and beneficent import to succeeding generations and what of garibaldi himself how will the garibaldian legend which turns out on examination to be true live in the minds of succeeding generations garibaldi is not to be judged as a professional soldier leading modern armies but as the greatest master that the world has seen of that special department of human activity known as revolutionary war he could never have commanded a regular force of one hundred thousand men though in his day he managed to defeat one owing to the size and efficiency of modern conscript armies there cannot be another revolutionary war precisely of the garibaldian type in the europe of the coming era but history is concerned with the past and not with the present or the future in eighteen sixty garibaldi was the right man in the right time and place but garibaldi's claim on the memory of men rests on more than his actual achievements it rests on that which was one part of his professional equipment as a soldier of revolution but which surpasses and transcends it his appeal to the imagination he was a poet in all save literary power he was guided in political and somewhat even in military situations by a poet's instincts and motives he is perhaps the only case except byron for a few weeks in greece of the poet as a man of action for most poets if they ever take part in action cease to be poetical while he was alive this quality was both his strength and his weakness samson's locks and achilles heel but now that he is dead the poetry in his character and career is all gain in his race for immortal laurels the history of events is ephemeral and for the scholar the poetry of events is eternal and for the multitude it is the acted poem that lives in the hearts of millions to whom the written words of history and the written words of poetry are alike an unopened book 
so Garibaldi becomes the symbol of Italia to her children in all ages to come, and on either side of the Atlantic. As the centuries slip by, carrying into oblivion almost all that once was noble or renowned, Manzini's soul and Cavour's wisdom will be forgotten by the Italian, who tends the vine or sweats beside the furnace, sooner than the old grey cloak and the red shirt that face of simple faith and love. And to us of other lands, and most of all to us Englishmen, Garibaldi will live as the incarnate symbol of two passions not likely soon to die out of the world, the love of country and the love of freedom, kept pure by the one thing that can tame and yet not weaken them, the tenderest humanity for all mankind. End of Epilogue